The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome, I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I have two of my esteemed colleagues, TJ or Timothy Sachet and Alison Terry, joining us for today's panel discussion on H-1B cap cases for fiscal year 2021. Um, Actually, amongst the three of us, we have close to a half a century of immigration law experience to share with you today. So let's get started with TJ as as the coordinator for the H-1B non-immigrant department, TJ uh, coordinating attorney. TJ, what is the H-1B cap and how does it work? Sure, so so the H-1B cap is, is essentially an annual limitation on the number of new H-1B workers that can be uh, sponsored each year. It's set at 65,000. However, out of the 65,000, only 58,500 are generally available for those in H-1B because there's a certain number set aside for nationals of Chile and Singapore, which is the H-1B1 visa program. And then in addition to the 58.5, there are also an additional 20,000 slots um, for individuals who have a master's degree and from an accredited and not-for-profit or not-for-profit or public U.S. university. And once once the 20s, uh, excuse me, once the 20,000 master's quota is used up, those with U.S. masters from nonprofit or um, or public university can file cases under the regular quota. Now that is how it worked in the past, and we'll go over a little bit more later how that has changed. Um, It's also important to note that USCIS is very highly scrutinizing cases that are filed under the master's cap. So if you file it under the master's cap, but you don't actually qualify for the master's cap, hey, you may get approved this year, five years down the road, you file an extension, they could come back and and, deny your extension, revoke your approval, something like that. So it's very important when you file to make sure that you are eligible for the master's cap, public, not-for-profit, and accredited U.S. university. Um, But there actually have been a little bit of changes to the lottery process. Um, Specifically, one of the the big changes is they're reversing the order for the cap. The the regular cap is actually going first. Those, uh, for all uh, holders, whether you got a master's degree or a bachelor's degree, so they're doing those first, and then they're going with the master's cap. And this has actually slightly increased the amount of individuals with master's degrees that are actually getting selected under the cap. Okay, what about the new registration process? Because I know that we at the Multi Law Firm will be planning a teleconference separately once more details are released. But so far, based on what the USCIS has released, TJ, would you just give a quick overview? Sure, sure. So pretty much in the past, you would file an entire H-1B petition, not knowing whether you were selected or not. It created you know inefficiencies, lots of time and money spent on those petitions. Now, however, all you're doing is going onto a government site and you're registering. It, it just requires certain pieces of discrete information, uh, background information on the company, background information on the beneficiary, such as name, uh, date of birth, it requests whether you're a master's degree holder or not. Um, there's a $10 registration fee. And then the registration for this is open between March 1st and March 20th of 2020. And then if you are selected, and we don't know when the selection is going to occur, uh, but if you are selected, you will have uh, a 90-day period 
to file your H-1B petition. So instead of before, you had to file it by the first week of April, now you have a 90-day period to prepare and file your H-1B so petition. So basically all of the rushing and craziness and all that will probably change in 2020, the dates, when people will be busy, it'll probably be closer to maybe April, May, instead of January, February, March, when all the CapCut petitions were filed? For, for the most part, and we'll discuss a little bit about you know urgencies later on mm-hmm. in terms of Yo, you have to still file by April 2nd okay. um, and things like that. Okay. Thank you very much, DJ. So, Ali, when should uh, an employer be planning to file H-1 petitions? How does the timing work? Sure. So, the cap numbers are going to become available for fiscal year 2021 on October 1st, 2020. Mm-hmm. So, practically speaking, this means that the earliest H-1B start date for a cap case is going to be October 1st, 2020. Um, the earliest you can file a case in advance of this is six months. So you're, you can request the October 1 start date, but you're looking at earliest you can file is going to be April. And then, so even if, let's say your petition is approved in June, the start date is still going to be October 1. So if a person files a cap case with a change of status, mm-hmm. they're not going to actually be in H-1B status until October. Okay, that makes sense. And in terms of who is obviously subject to the H-1B cap, an employee or beneficiary who has never had an H-1B in the past would most likely be subject to the cap. Um, But an exception could apply. A person who was counted against the cap in the past but was outside of the U.S. for at least one continuous year may choose to be counted either against the cap to receive a full new new full six years in H-1B status, but the person may just choose to use the remainder of the six years from the unused portion from the prior petition. The other exception is for physicians who have obtained J-1 waivers through the Conrad 30 program or the international governmental programs based on the government agency sponsoring you would be cap exempt. And some employers are also cap exempt, and this includes employment at or by a university and their nonprofit affiliates, which is often hospitals associated with universities, as well as nonprofit and government research organizations. Not all, not all nonprofits, but nonprofit and a government research organization. It is important to discuss with your attorney to make a determination if an employer is cap exempt. So, TJ, would it be all non nonprofits? No, it's not. It's not all nonprofits. It's nonprofit. You got to meet certain requirements. Um, I think we actually discussed this in detail in a, in a prior teleconference. Mm-hmm. You've got to be a, a, a nonprofit um, related to or affiliated with an institution of higher education. Um, okay, so that's the crux of it: is to the the, the relationship with the institution of higher mm-hmm. education, like a university, a community college, whatever. Okay, so next, let's have uh, you touch upon. Um, what do the regulations require in order for an employee to qualify for the H-1? And I know a lot of RFEs and denials mm-hmm. are coming on some of these issues. Sure. So w- one of the biggest things we, we are seeing is, is, is that the main crux of the H-1B is that the job needs to be a specialty occupation. And that's a position that requires a bachelor's or higher degree, uh, or the equivalent, can be a foreign equivalent, in a specific field of study. So you can't, it can't just require, you know, just a general bachelor's degree. It's got to be a bachelor's degree in the field of study. So if you require, you know, if it's an IT position and it requires a degree in computer science, that would work. 
Um, and you also have to show that the, the individual actually possesses the degree at the time of filing. So let's say you file it in April 1st, but the person does not graduate from the degree program until May 1st. Well, that person would not qualify for the H-1B job because the degree was earned after the filing. So it's really important to, to take that in consideration when determining whether to file an H-1B cap case. And also another big thing that we really are seeing is that- if Even the, though the job only starts on October 1st, mm -hmm. they're yeah. saying that you cannot file it on April 1st, even though you gra they know everybody graduates in May or June? Exactly, so uh, lots, of, uh, you know, lots of people we see are an OPT or their STEM extension, so they have graduated. But that subset of, uh, of individuals who graduated in May just have to wait till the next fiscal year. Now there could be with the new registration, there could be some little wiggle room here. That's what right? I was just thinking yeah. that this registration might mm -hmm. actually give them those three or four extra months because if they only are asking you to complete the lottery March yep. 1st to March 20th of 2020, and then they take, let's just say, I don't know, a month to get back to everybody by April 20th, and then you have three months from that date to file it. Mm -hmm. Now you're talking May, June, July. So if the employer has the time and now you've graduated with your degree, there yeah. may be a, a silver lining to this dark cloud with everything <laughs> going on under the current administration. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's certainly possible that that could be a benefit of the new registration system. And then another big thing that we're seeing is that it, it can't just require a degree, uh, the position can't require a degree in any field or a broad field. Um, for instance, you can't say the position requires a degree in engineering and, and think that that's going to qualify the position as a specialty occupation. What you're going to see happen is USDA has come back and says, no, that's too broad of a field. You don't require a degree in a specific field of study. There are 18 billion different fields within the engineering um, field. Um, so that's another big issue that we're seeing. Okay. What about, uh, 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 Ali, you look like you're dying to say something. <laughs> yeah, I think one thing I would also mention is just the use of education and experience evaluations. So this doesn't come up quite as frequently in CAP cases, but it still does. Um, sometimes we'll use a combination of education and experience uh, to qualify someone who maybe has an unrelated degree, but has a lot of years of experience in the field, um, which they can be really useful and great, but keep in mind that USCIS is very highly scrutinizing these and they really require that the evaluations are performed by a professor that's actually authorized to grant college credit for the degree uh, like at a school that has experiential credits that you can give um, and you know the, you want to make sure when you're getting these two that you provide experience letters with details of duties you actually performed and things like that. Really basic letters, the government's going to really point those out and most likely create an issue with it. Hmm. Okay. Um, I saw the issue where you said you don't need the actual physical diploma, but because you could look at the credits that are completed, like we said. Yes. Yeah, so but then, so even in that mm -hmm. example that TJ just gave, then wouldn't that person be able to say that in a, on April 1st they've completed almost all the credits at that point? It ultimately, I think, depends on whether mm. they've completed the course of study and just haven't you know, walked across the stage at graduation, so to speak, mm. as opposed to maybe their semester doesn't end until May. So if their semester doesn't end until May, but they're not filing until June. So they haven't done the June, final exam. Right. So. If you, let's say you do graduate, before and you just don't have a physical degree, you can get a letter mm -hmm. from the school to say, hey, this person has completed their degree, they just don't have the physical diploma yet. Okay, thank you, Allie. TJ, sure. what's the general lottery process? 
Sure. So we went over this a little bit before, and it's you know vastly changing this year. You know, you, you file your registration, you get selected, then you file your H-1B cap case. Um, important, you know, reminder that they are doing their regular cap first. So there could be a substantially or a, a bit higher um, individual with master's degree selected. But that was even last year. That was even last year too. Mm -hmm. So I think it was like 11% mm -hmm. higher, something like that. Don't hold me to those numbers, mm -hmm. but it was it was higher last year. And, and we are seeing lots of our cases coming in. A lot of people have master's degrees now. A lot of people are going back to school mm -hmm. and getting their master's mm -hmm. degrees. Um, you know, just important to note that the preparation of, of H-1Bs is complex. Um, and especially recently, USCIS has been subjecting them to much, much greater scrutiny, mm -hmm. um, by far. Um, and this is a, a, especially true in situations where the individual is going to work at a third-party site, mm -hmm. where they really want to see contracts and, and, and verification of the work the person is actually going to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, that's why it's, it's really important just to get started on the process as soon as possible. Okay, thank you. Uh, the other question that we are often asked is, will the beneficiary or the employee be able to change status to H-1B within the United States? Uh, for example, if the OPT is expiring in the summer, probably before October 1st start date. So the general rule is that a beneficiary or employee is able to obtain the change of status approval to H-1B within the United States where the H-1B petition requests an October 1st start date, but only if the person's non-immigrant status will continue until September 30th of that same year, except the exception is for students who are, or employees who are in an F-1 full-time student status, then if the student status or the F-1 OPT ends or expires prior to September 30th of that year, then the person may be eligible for an automatic cap gap extension until September 30th. But for this, the person needs to meet four conditions. First, the petition has to be filed before the expiration of the person's OPT or the end of the grace period. Second, the change of status is requested on the H-1B petition. Um, is the change of status requested to the H-1B petition. Three, an October 1st start date is requested, and four, the case is obviously eventually approved, or even while it's pending, I guess, till it's denied, you're allowed to stay there. Um, what are the other conditions, TJ? Sure, so I think one of the key things that you, you mentioned there is that it's filed before the expiration of the OPT, and that's where we see an issue coming up with the new registration process. So as we talked about, you get 90 days to file your H-1B, petition if your registration is, is selected. Um, the, the issue comes in though, so what if you're an individual whose OPT ends on April 10th? Yeah, you've been selected in, in the lottery, but your H-1B petition has not been filed. So therefore you're selected in the lottery, let's say you have from April 1st until, you know, for 90 days to file your H-1B petition. However, if you want to be, take advantage of CapGap, you actually need to file your petition by April 10th. So you have two, three weeks as opposed to the full 90 days. So that's why it's very important if you are one of the individuals in this situation, I'll say have a, have a, you know, an OPT, STEM OPT expiring any time, you know, April, May, or months, June. April, May or June, yeah. that you need to start your H-1B as soon as possible. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, you need an LCA, LCAs can take up to seven to 10 days to be certified. Uh, they've got a new flag system, which is very finicky and there you know, crashes frequently. So it's, it's very important to start that as soon as possible to make sure that you can file your H-1B petition 
while eligible to be to take advantage of the cap cap. So for those who are expiring at that time, especially with respect to like the, the LCA and stuff, they probably should do it even before getting selected in the lottery mm -hmm. because what do they care? They should just pay for the cost or whatever it costs, whether it's the law firm attorney or the company preparing it, getting the preventing wage determination and doing all of that work because that's where 10 or 15 valuable days can be lost. Sure, sure. So if you if you have an expiration at any time in April, I'll certainly say it's really important to start that process even before you know if you're selected in the lottery. Okay. Uh, anything else that, uh, so if the petition is either denied or revoked, the cap gap extension will terminate. If the petition is still pending after September 30th, the student is considered in a period of authorized stay, but the person does not have any permission to work after October 1st. Again, the cap gap uh, work authorization ends, has always ended on, the, on September 30th of that, of that year, the, basically the prior fiscal or the, the prior fiscal year. Uh, a petition could be sent back, now, now I don't know, in the new lottery, the new system that we have, whether rejections are still possible, uh, but it's possible that a case could be rejected because the check wasn't signed properly, the person didn't put the date, didn't, that there were incomplete application, incorrect application, or due to some other defect in the petition that USCIS could not accept it for processing. So what kind of proof is required in terms of cap cap extension and other details, Ali? So typically the DSO will update the I-20 and it will show that a petition has been filed and it will actually say cap gap on the I-20. Uh, something to keep in mind and a question we get a lot is people want to travel and go home during the summer. Uh, and they should keep in mind if they do that, that CVIS actually recommends that students do not travel outside the US when they're in cap gap and that if they do so, they need to wait to come back until the H-1B is approved. Because if you travel while a change of status is pending, the change of status portion is gonna be considered abandoned and you can still get an approval, but not for change of status with, it would, you'd have to go get your H-1B visa stamp and come in in order to be counted against the cap. Right, and we're seeing a lot of those mm -hmm. kinds of maintenance of status issues happening routinely. So what are the criteria or the requirements, DJ, for um, the USCIS to approve it because we're seeing more and more RFEs and denials where they may approve the H-1 petition, hallelujah, but then you say, whoops, <laughs> yep. we got the denial of the person's status, now the person has to travel abroad, apply in the consulate, like Ali just said, but people are scared. They're scared to go abroad because they're hearing horror stories from their friends about how people's visas are getting denied routinely. What are they supposed to do? What are the criteria? Yeah, so, I mean, we're, we're certainly seeing a lot of denials of the change of status request, travel, uh, lots of people in F1 status first semester CPT. We're seeing a lot of denials in those situations. Another situation where you need to be careful and 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 look at your status is let's say you're in H4 status that is valid until June 15th of that year, and your spouse is not planning on renewing his or her H1B. So your H4 is only valid until June. Well, if you want to remain here after June, you're not protected by the cap gap you need to show that your underlying status is valid until September 30th if you want to be able to remain here while that H-1B petition remains pending. So in, in this situation, the H-4, they need to file their H-1B petition for consular processing, which means they can't stay here after their expiration of their I-94 card. They'd have to wait till it's approved, go abroad, get a visa. Alternatively, let's say their spouse is going to you know, maintain their H-1 status, so the H-4 could file an extension of their H-4 status that would get them past September 30th, and then when they file their H-1B cap case, 
you know, they'd have that H4 pending, which would allow them to stay, and they could also get the H4, uh, I'm sorry, the H1B approved for, uh, for a change of status within the United States. Okay. So, uh, thank you, TJ. So, the next thing we're seeing, which we like to touch upon, of course, is the fees. But I know that the USCIS has recently again sent out another request to suggest another series of fee increases for USCIS filings. And while it's not targeted to H-1 petitions again because they just increased it, uh, I think the American Immigration Lawyers Association, most of us as immigration lawyers, are extremely alarmed and quite upset and ticked off that the government is again increasing fees overall while they're processing delays and the number of denials and all the fee increase money, most of it is going towards hiring people to enforce immigration laws, not for providing services. And we're not supposed to be taking all of the government money for processing and using it for other purposes, which we believe is uh, improper, incorrect, and a violation of the Homeland Security Act, which clearly required USCIS to focus on providing services, not providing enforcement activities. They've just recently increased or changed, I guess, a few months ago, their H-1B filing fees. That's not in the next slew of uh, in increases that they're talking about, but they are. They have increased it close to 80%, I think, across the board, between 20 and 80% most filing fees. So, uh, uh, Ali, do you want to just touch upon the fees? Sure. So, you're looking at a fee of $460. That's for any H-1B filing. Um, a $500 anti-fraud fee. We strongly recommend that this is paid by the employer. There can be some debate as to whether the employee can pay or not, but we pretty much across the board recommend that the employer pay this and really all fees associated with H-1Bs. Um, there's also going to be either a $750 or $1,500 training fee. This one must be paid by the employer. Um, how much you pay is going to depend on the number of employees you have. If you have 25 or less, you're gonna pay 750. And if you have 26 or more, you're looking at 1500. There's also a $4,000 border protection fee, also needs to be paid by the employer. This one only applies if the employer has 50 or more employees. And of all those employees, more than 50% are H-1B and or L-1B. So if you've got 50 employees and 25 of them are on H-1B, you're looking at paying that extra $4,000. Sure, and then there's, of course, on top of that, the premium processing fee, of, right. which so, has also increased by a few dollars. Yeah, it went up to $1,440 now. So it's that's discretionary, it's optional. Um, a lot of players are opting to do it, so that's another $1,440 on top of everything else. Yeah, well, and, yeah. and it might be suspended during the, and when there's uh, the cap season, but again, right. this year, because of the registration, we don't know what's gonna happen. In general, I know some employers are okay with paying it, and we had a big discussion while we were talking about this panel, because my my thought, my feeling is that in in eight out of ten, especially extension cases, maybe not in the first time cap, but extension, or but not in the case where if the person's status is expiring early, obviously you don't want to take that risk when you might have to pay that fourteen forty. But majority of the other cases, if it's an extension, I would suggest that as an employer, you stop throwing more and more hard-earned money uh, to, to try to, because all that we're seeing with premium processing in many cases is USCIS is issuing the RFEs faster and the denials faster, but if the person had just filed it as an extension and amendment because of a new work location, there's no 240-day time limit. The person can keep working forever and ever. So you have paid extra money to the government 
to have you and your employee and the employee's family being uprooted on a fast track basis, which to me makes no common sense. Okay, so let's now next move, since I play the role of moderator for this panel, let's move to some of the more common issues or problems that we are encountering, particularly for ID consulting companies with H-1B petitions, which are of course, one, the employer-employee relationship or lack thereof, two, lack of specialty occupation of the beneficiary, again, one of the most common reasons we're seeing in the Trump administration, three, the, per, the employee not having the appropriate qualifications, educational work experience, and of course, the fourth that we touched upon, maintenance of status, is the employee maintaining their valid status. So TJ, I'll have you started to discuss the issue of the employer-employee relationship in particular after the February 22nd, 2018 policy memo. Sure, so, so for employer-employer relationship, you need to demonstrate that the employer has the right to control the manner and means by which the work is done by the employee, and that this control will exist for the entire duration requested in the petition, generally where we've seen requests for three years. And USCIS must be able to determine through evidence submitted by the employer if the employee, if the employer has sufficient level of control over the employee, especially, and this is very important, when the employee is placed at a third party location. That's where we see a lot of these issues with control come up. If you're at a third party location, how are you going to control the work of your worker? USCIS kind of forgets that electronic communication is very prevalent these days. Um, and some of the factors that USCIS looks at is whether the petitioner, the employer, has the right to assign additional duties to the employee, the extent of the employer's discretion over how and when, you know, how the employee will work, who provides the instrumentalities and the tools needed to perform the job, and then the duration of the project. Okay. Also, if the H-1B worker will be working on specific client projects, then there needs to be evidence of the projects in the form of contracts, purchase orders, or statements of work, and a letter from the end client whenever possible. Some are happy to give it, some are very, very unhappy or don't or refuse to provide it as a matter of company policy. Also, if there are mid-vendors involved, all of the contractual documents relating to the mid-vendors should ideally be submitted to make the case stronger. Um, what about end client contracts? Sure, so USCIS is still, and I think most employers are probably familiar with this, is that USCIS really wants to see documentation from the end clients now. So now I think more than ever, they're really strict about wanting to see the end client contracts and letters to help verify that the petitioner actually has specialty occupation work available for the beneficiary for the duration requested. This was really heavily emphasized in that uh, policy memo that TJ talked about. So say your petition is requesting three years, but you submit a contract and a purchase order that only has a three month duration, more likely than not, you're getting that three months if the case is approved. And this has come up a lot because you'll have, let's say, a consular processing cap case and it gets a short approval and there's no time to get visa stamping before the expiration. And a lot of clients are running into this issue where it's like they get their cap case approved, but then it's almost like they may as well have denied it because if you can't get the visa stamp in time, you basically didn't get your cap number. Mm -hmm. um, and we say all this, right, with, but also acknowledge and understand. But don't you have a whole fiscal year to get your visa stamped? If you don't get it stamped during the validity period of the approval, uh, the government is pretty much every time now taking the stance that if you don't get that stamp and enter on it and get the I-94, that you didn't get counted against the cap and you're not really eligible at that point for some other filing with a longer duration. And I think it's just 
understanding too when you're working on getting these documents that we understand that sometimes clients do not want to provide you with documentation and it's a lot of times out of the employer's hands but the best things that employers can do is just try their best to get what documentation they can and and certainly we out yeah. from the multi law firm are willing to call and speak either with the mid vendors or with the end clients for you all as h1b employers who are filing your petitions through the multi law firm to explain what the uscis requirements are what the law requires and the importance of submitting those documents in order for that uh, employee to continue working for that end client or that mid vendor so that it's a win-win-win all around. Sure, and I kind of want to just kind of reemphasize what, what Ali talked about in terms of getting a, a, an appropriate duration mm -hmm. because it's, it's absolutely important to submit the contracts and the applicable statement of work or purchase order that shows the duration that you are requesting. You know, if you have a, a, a contract that's, that has a very short duration, Honestly, what I'm seeing, it doesn't matter what the client letter says about duration. It doesn't matter what a project timeline says about duration. They're going to give you exactly what is listed on that statement of work or purchase order. And now we have come up recently with some unique legal arguments as to why you should at very least get a year. Um, but those are hit or miss. Hit or miss depending on the agenda. And actually the way the regulations are written, I don't even know that it says you can give it truncated. It says in H1B shall be for three years renewable for one more term, which I think is the reason some of the lawyers have been filing those APA lawsuits mm -hmm. and the government does not want a decision that will come back to bite them because that would mean millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in legal fees that the government would have to refund. So I think we need to challenge them because a lot of times when employers are challenging the, the, the USCIS, they're very often trying to close the case very quickly. And like TJ said, you know, you can include project timelines, documentation like that about the project and extra documentation about specialty occupation in general, but if you provide these alternative documents that don't pro provide any contracts or any letters, at the end of the day, you're more likely to get a shorter duration. It's really all largely just stemming from that, that policy memo. I know some people still say, well, you know, maybe if you show the continuation of the project year upon year upon year, mm -hmm. yes, it's only one year at a time from the end client, but it's been going on for the last, you know, five or 10 years. Sometimes they may take that into account, but in today's administration, we're seeing less and less. Previously, I think that was much more taken mm -hmm. into account. Okay, so besides all of these documents that are signed and dated and everything done properly, the big, big, big issue that we're seeing now in the Trump administration, because that's an easy peg uh, for them to hang their hat on is the denial based on lack of specialty occupation of the beneficiary or employee. So what are, what are the sorts of issues that as employers on this conference call, how can they benefit uh, in, in addressing those issues up front or in an RFE TJ? So I think addressing the issues is, dealing with the issues is, is filing a strong case up front and, and understanding what the issues are before you file is, is really important. So we touched upon this a little bit previously but the field of study that you list as required is very important. If you say it requires, the position is an IT position, if you say it requires a degree in computer science, business, engineering, or math, or something like that, USCIS is gonna come back and say, these are two broad fields. You cannot have a position that requires a degree in you know, an IT-related field, such as computer science or business, and still be considered a specialty occupation. And like we talked about, that's a position that requires a degree in a specific field. Business, computer science, way too far related. 
And if you if you get to that RFE stage, it's almost too late to really fix it. U.S. States is most likely there's a high chance that they're going to deny your case. The, the other thing that is really important to plan ahead for is the occupational classification. Now, you do need to choose the occupational classification for the position that actually fits it best. Um, but that being said, there are certain occupational classifications that USCIS is much more highly scrutinizing. If you file with a computer systems analyst, there's a much higher chance of an RFE. If you file with um, some of these other occupational classifications that maybe aren't a job zone four, that are you know little low level position, some of the computer occupation, all other ones, there's a substantially higher chance that you're going to get an RFE on on the, the issue of specialty occupation. Sure, I mean we we do see a lot of you know in addition to the SOC code. We're, we're seeing a lot of scrutiny on the wage levels. And you know, if you file your case as a wage level one position showing entry level, it is gonna get higher scrutiny um, in two ways. One, USCIS sometimes come, comes back and says, hey, how can an entry level be a special occupation? Which doesn't really make sense because like Sheila, you were talking about, yeah, there's an entry level lawyer. No one's gonna tell me that a lawyer does not require a degree in a specific field. It's a legal requirement to even practice the profession. Um, similar for other occupations, even if it's not a legal requirement to pra practice a profession, you can have a computer science position at an entry level that requires a computer science degree. Where do graduates go after they graduate? And the other th reason or way we're seeing them scrutinize level one is, let's say you file with job duties that say, you know, provide subject matter expertise in this, supervise and review the work of others, and you've got it certified as a level one, the government comes back and says, oh, we're not even gonna talk about whether level one is, is a specialty occupation. You don't have a properly certified LCA. You certified it as LCA, uh, as a level one, but if you're supervising people, if you're providing subject matter expertise, you're not level one. Therefore, you don't have a properly certified LCA, and we're gonna deny your case on that basis. So that's another thing to kind of consider when you're formatting the job duties for a position. If it truly is an entry level, it probably shouldn't have these types of keywords. Except if you're there. a professor researcher, of course you're going to mentor students and teach students as a level sure. one, but you're a professor and level one wage. And uh, enough lawyers say, look, you have to push back. You can't just acknowledge. They are going to give us a hard time, but you have to fight and not acknowledge because the fact is the law, the regulations, nothing has changed. Next, let's touch upon the beneficiary's qualifications, Ali. Sure. So this comes in a lot where, you know, TJ touched on what are you requiring for this job, but then you also have to make sure that whatever the job actually requires, the employee meets that. So you don't want to have, I think, one big thing that comes up, right? Let's say you have a software developer. So you're saying this job requires a bachelor's degree in computer science, but the individual has a degree in mechanical engineering. Right? The government's not going to consider mechanical engineering to be related to a software developer role. This is something that three years ago, four years ago maybe-ish, you know, you could get away with it worked. But now it's, it's not going to work. So you either have to put them, that person needs to be an actual mechanical engineer, or they have to have an alternative way to qualify for the job. And that's where your education and experience evaluations come in. These are tricky with CAP cases because you get a lot of people who have maybe three years of experience, minimal experience because they've just been studying. So it's hard sometimes when you're trying to qualify someone who maybe doesn't have a degree that's directly on point um, and just be aware experience evaluations are going to be a higher risk, maybe potentially harder to get approved case than if you can rely on just the person's actual degree. Now, a lot of times people have, let's say they have a master's degree in 
mechanical engineering, but they have a bachelor's degree from abroad that's in something like electronics engineering or electrical engineering, uh, IT, computer science. Sometimes people kind of forget that you can use that and they're afraid, well, if I use my, my foreign degree, can I still qualify for the master's cap? And the answer is yes. As long as you have a US master's degree, whether it's related to that job or not, doesn't matter. So you can still rely on that bachelor's degree and I think a lot of people get hung up on that. Um, but when in, whenever possible, rely on the degree as opposed to an evaluation. Thank you, Ali. I know we're very mindful of the time because we try to wrap these up between 30 and 45 minutes and we're pretty close to the deadline that we have to respond. The last issue we wanted to touch upon briefly was the maintenance of status issues. We've already talked quite a bit about it, that if the individual doesn't have the status, the cap gap extensions change from a different status to one, sometimes using the day one OSC curricular practical training for students. Um, or working at third-party work locations where the employer is not monitoring the person or filled out the 983 or doing all of the things they're supposed to do. All of these have now become very common reasons for the USCIS to deny the uh, change of status approval with the I-94 card attached, thereby requiring the individual to have to fly abroad and come back, which of course then makes the employee nervous, makes the employer nervous, adds work to the consular processing, and could delay the person's start date and the, losing the, the, the project itself. Um, so maintenance of status has become a bigger deal. Did TJ or Ali want to add anything quickly to that? I think I think we're just we're just seeing a lot much more higher scrutiny mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. someone is on one on, on CPT, um, and two just and if you're a student in general, you are seeing much higher scrutiny um, on those types of cases. And what some people are doing is, hey, I got a, a STEM valid for another two years. I'm going to file my initial cap case as, as consular process. And I understand the risk of going abroad and getting the visa, and that's very scary. But if USCIS does make a finding that you, while on your STEM OPT, have violated your status and also deny your case, well, now you've lost that two full years that you have on your STEM OPT, and you don't have an H-1B petition to go back to. So sometimes it may be beneficial to, you know, depending on the circumstances of each case, to just file your case directly for consular processing, say USCIS, hey, I don't care about, don't worry about my status, don't look at it because but I'm not requesting it. We've been seeing apparently and hearing that even when you do that, they're coming back and saying you violated your status in the decision at times, even if you haven't asked for it. So what, what I've been seeing, what we've been seeing here and there is, you ask for the status in the initial filing, then at the RFE stage, mm -hmm. they ask you about your status and you say, oh, never mind, I'll go abroad, I don't need to change the status anymore, just withdraw my status request, and they're coming back and saying, gotcha, you didn't provide any evidence about your status, we're denying your status request. Mm. That's what I've been seeing. Mm -hmm. So it's more if you didn't ask it right up from the beginning, then mm -hmm. you're probably safer, but then it requires convincing both the individual, the mm -hmm. employee, the family members, et cetera, that the person needs to buy an airline ticket, travel, take the risk, could be stuck or delayed yeah. at the consulate, all of that. Uh, so we hope that in today's discussion, we have given you a flavor of what's to come, what's going on, what we've been seeing over the last couple of years. Uh, for H-1B petitions and CAP filed petitions. Of course, this year in fiscal year 2021, we expect this whole new H-1B registration requirement that is a brand new requirement that TJ and Ali and I touched upon briefly. Uh, we Again, a lot of details are not yet completely in place, but we have shared whatever the government has shared with us for you to start plan making preparations and making your plans. And um, of course, we at the Murthy Law Firm will plan to have a teleconference on that topic as soon as more information is forthcoming. Um, so on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, TJ, 
Ali, Terry, Alice and Terry, and the entire Muthi Law Firm team. We thank you for joining us in today's teleconference. We want to wish you and your families a very, very happy, healthy, and prosperous 2020. Uh, happy New Year to you and yours. And we really look forward to continuing to take good care of you in this coming year. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.